Uh, let's just stop and uh, pray, and we'll get here to the text in John chapter 5. Our Father and our God, we are rejoicing uh, in your goodness. We're rejoicing in your kindness. Uh, we're thankful for um, sound theological truth that is uh, that's didactic, that teaches us, again, more about you, and for the opportunity to sing those great hymns of the faith, and then uh, to hear the beautiful sounds of the harp, uh, praising you, our God, and praising Christ. Oh, what an amazing God you are to allow us to stand before you, uh, to come into your presence, and, and to worship you, and for you to receive us as your sons and daughters. We love you, and we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here. We praise you in Christ's name. <clears throat> Amen. We're obviously in John chapter 5, so you might want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. We're looking at the person of uh, Jesus Christ. We're looking at this portion of Scripture where he openly declares uh, his deity. Uh, that is the point of the section of Scripture. That's also the point of the entire Gospel of John. Uh, these things, John says, have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And while Jesus makes these claims, uh, declaring his deity, while he approves his deity, obviously the result in large part is unbelief. He says, I say these things that you may be saved, but the overall response is unbelief. Uh, verse 40, I think it is, says you are unwilling to come, right? They're unwilling to come to Christ that they might have life. That's the sad state of mankind. Let me just read the uh, uh, passage here, starting in verse, <coughs> excuse me, starting in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent uh, to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, but the witness which I receive is not from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. He was a light, uh, a lamp that was burning and uh, was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. The Father <clears throat> who sent me has borne witness of me. Uh, you have uh, neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him who he sent. You search the, scripture, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Even in the midst of uh, overwhelming evidence, there is a purposeful, irrational unbelief in the hardness of mankind's heart that causes most men not to accept, not to receive uh, the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And uh, again, most people are, uh, don't receive the reality of who he is because they just don't want to. It is uh, tragically as simple as that. They don't want to. They're unwilling to come to Christ. And unwilling really is that key word, right? The unwillingness of the sinner to believe the truth. Uh, it's a foundational understanding and understanding the being of man who's blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, dead in trespasses and sins, uh, unable to respond to God's grace, but on top of that inability is this uh, willful unwillingness to come to Christ. That's the depth of sin. Uh, that's the, the depth of unbelief. That's the, the negative effect of the fall of mankind. That's the condition of the unregenerate. They're unwilling to come to the only one who can save them, the only one who can reconcile them, because men love their sin, right? They love their sin. They don't want to come to Christ. 
uh, and they were going they will choose to reject him which of course in doing so it will cost them eternally for that error as they will spend eternity in hell for rejecting Christ for rejecting God's mercy that's the sad truth about mankind the result of uh, Christ's interaction with the religious leaders uh, is uh, in spite of the evidence they will uh, continue in their unbelief and rejection in the end they will turn him over to the Romans they will have him crucified by the hands of the Romans they will execute him they will execute him who knew no sin right? mankind and his wickedness will murder God's tangible display of his love uh, for fallen mankind and, and again this kind of uh, willful unbelief this kind of willful rejection is completely irrational it's completely irrational because God desires to save men. That's the heart of God. He desires to show mercy to men, to bless men. He desires that all would, uh, that none would perish and all would come to a saving knowledge of the truth, through repentant faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that men would enjoy a reconciled relationship with him, that they would know life and joy and peace and happiness in time. And again, it all, all comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? But again, most people don't want that. Most people refuse to come to Christ. Therefore, most men will die in their sin. They'll bear in their own body the punishment for their sin, facing eternal condemnation because they have themselves rejected God's mercy. They themselves have rejected God's grace. They themselves have rejected God's only means of reconciliation, that being through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of our study here in John 5, we've seen Jesus is repeatedly claiming his equality with God. And that from verse um, 17 through 30, uh, we saw the religious leader's um, response to him was a rejection of that claim. Uh, he, he is a threat to them. He's a threat to their religious system. He, he is a threat to their power over people, uh, their damning system of superficial morality, their damning system of a superficial religiosity that can never save men. He stands in opposition to them, and they hate him for that. And, and Jesus is giving testimony to the fact, again, that he's none other than God come in the flesh. He is equal with God the Father in all aspects. Look at verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, it's a claim to deity. It's a claim to equality with God the Father. It's a proclamation that he doesn't do anything on his own, his own will, his own initiative, but always in complete cooperation or complete conjunction with with God the Father. Therefore, the religious leaders who are accusing him of doing wrong at the same time really are accusing God the Father of doing wrong as well. To which Jesus responds, verse 31, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, I told you he's not saying that his testimony is not true because his testimony is true. His uh, testimony concerning himself is reliable. It's not unreliable. It's not untruthful. But the point that he's trying to make here is the Jewish religious leaders uh, are going to say that one man's testimony about himself is not sufficient. That's basically the idea. So he's going to offer, Jesus is going to offer more testimony. He's going to give more witness, more witnesses to the stand, the witness stand as it were. And he says, uh, verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me. And I know that the testimony to which he bears of me is true. Verse 34 says, but the witness which I receive, listen, is not from men, right? It's not from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. So the additional testimony that Jesus is going to bring to the courtroom, if you will, the additional witness that Jesus is going to put form is put forward is not from man. So if it's a testimony not from man, that kind of narrows it down to one person, right? It makes it that we get the, who the, the testimony is from. It's God the Father only, right? He's the one who bears true witness. He's the one who bears witness, testimony, the person of Jesus Christ, God the Father who cannot lie. 
Now, as we're working our way through the portion of Scripture, we're going to see, and I told you we'll see that Jesus, uh, or through God the Father, there's three lines of evidence, three different levels, if you will, of evidence that God the Father puts forward concerning the deity of Christ. And the Father bears witness or testimony concerning the reality of the deity of Christ, first, through the testimony of John the Baptist, number two, through the miracles or the works of Christ, and then thirdly, through the Scripture, or the Word of God itself. Now, we were partway through this last time a couple weeks ago when I was with you, and uh, let me just do a very quick review here. The first line of evidence, the first evidence concerning the reality of who Jesus is, is through the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 33, you have sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth, but the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, again, we covered this in detail last time, so I won't go into a, a great uh, uh, amount of information here, but <clears throat> John the Baptist obviously has a very public ministry and a powerful ministry. There hadn't been a prophet in uh, Israel for about 400 years until John shows up at the scene. And, and the Jewish religious leaders never did. They could not. They did not deny the fact that John was a, indeed a prophet from God. He was a man sent from God who spoke from God, spoke on God's behalf. And the purpose of John the Baptist and his ministry was to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. So John, out in the wilderness, preached a message of repentance from sin, and he was the one who was to identify the Messiah when he showed up. And that's exactly what he did when he saw Jesus. Right? He said about Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the Jewish religious leaders had acknowledged the importance of John the Baptist in his ministry. In fact, they'd sent a delegation out to John, and John, who was one who was faithful and gave testimony to the truth. Again, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Therefore, John's testimony should carry a tremendous amount of weight, a tremendous amount of credence. Verse 35 again, he was a lamp that was burning and, you, and, and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the people of Israel were flocking out to the wilderness to hear John, and um, the religious leader sent out a delegation to investigate him. But when John began to preach on repentance, when he began to pe- preach on personal repentance from sin, uh, and then he denounced the religious leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy, he was rejected. And of course, we know that John will eventually lose his head for proclaiming righteousness and condemning Herod Antipas's unlawful marriage, which uh, leads to his arrest and his execution. The people who went out to see John were temporarily drawn to John. They were superficially drawn to John by the spectacle of the, spectacle of the ministry, but they were not genuinely repentant. And ultimately, they turned away from the light, they turned away from the truth that John was proclaiming, because again, men love their sin. Light has shown up, and men sit in darkness, and men love their sin. So again, the light had been rejected, the, the darkness embraced, Uh, because men's deeds are evil. But John gives faithful testimony, the prophet of God whom God sent. The second line of testimony that confirms the deity of Christ was uh, Jesus' works, his miracles. And we were uh, partway through this second point last time, verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given to me accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father had sent me. Right? Even more convincing than the testimony of John the Baptist was the very works that Christ performs, his miracles. Uh, even uh, Nicodemus, back in <coughs> chapter 3, uh, w- w- had to confess, we know that you're a man come from God, because no one can do the sea signs unless God is with him. John chapter 7, verse 31, many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those 
which this man has, will he? I mean, this guy is spectacular is what they're saying. There's no, been nobody like him. Even Jesus' bitterest enemies had to admit after Jesus physically raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, Lazarus, who, of course, had been in the tomb for four days, John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees, <coughs> excuse me, Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And, and they couldn't have that because, again, Jesus is a threat to their false religious system. And Jesus is a threat to their power over the people. But again, Jesus' miraculous power confirms uh, his claim to be the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. Uh, the Gospels record at least three dozen min- uh, miracles that Jesus performed, and, and according to John 20 and 30, countless others that weren't re- written down, that weren't recorded. Jesus says again, the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which, I, the, which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now again, we just started to introduce this point. It's fascinating. The power of Christ, all right? This shuts down all of the nonsense that people like to put forward concerning the person of Jesus Christ just being a good teacher, a moral man, a great person to follow, etc., and so forth. Matthew 4 and 23, Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 4, 24, they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew eight sixteen, he healed all who were ill. Matthew nine thirty five, going about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew twelve fifteen, many followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew fourteen fourteen, he went ashore, saw a great multitude, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. Matthew fifteen thirty, a great multitude came to him, bringing them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Matthew nineteen two, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Matthew twenty one verse fourteen, the blind, the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. The supernatural power of Jesus Christ is undeniable. His miraculous power, undeniable. His miraculous power, irrefutable truth that he is more than a man, that he is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, I told you that to try to get a greater appreciation of what Jesus is doing and just how dramatic these miraculous uh, healings were in the context of the day, we have to understand in this day that this book is written, people did not live very long. People didn't live very long. It was a world full of disease. When people contracted a disease, for the most part, they just dealt with that disease. The disease ran its course without any intervention. Therefore, there were always people around you who were sick and dying. There were always sick and dying people in your midst because medicine, medicine and medical science as we know it today didn't exist. Right? There are no hospitals. There are no medicines. There's no advanced treatment. There, there are no uh, inoculations. Right? It just didn't happen. So pain, suffering, disease was unchecked. It was just a way of life. There's no way to deal with these things until Jesus showed up. And because of his compassion for men, he was alleviating suffering and pain. He was curing blindness and cancers and tumors and paralysis and infections and vast numbers of diseases. And in doing so, he's authenticating his person. He's authenticating his person, his ministry, and his message. And he's one who came and he touched people. I told you that Christ literally wiped out, during his ministry, he literally wiped out uh, disease in Palestine. 
Now, again, nothing like this had ever been seen before in the, in the history of Israel. And again, if you look at biblical history, biblical recorded, biblically revealed history, you'll see that uh, uh, signs and wonders, miraculous healings were very uncommon. They only, heard, they only occur three times in all of redemptive history. They occur first at the time of Moses and the Exodus. They occur secondly at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then they occur here in the New Testament at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all these situations, all these miraculous times of, uh, in redemptive history, they were always for the purpose of authenticating the messenger and the message. The messenger and the message. And especially with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> they attest to his divinity, to his deity. The fact that he, again, is God come in the flesh. They authenticate who he is, and they authenticate the supernatural power of the gospel. So there's an explosion of the miraculous at the time of Christ, an explosion of miraculous healings. Christ, again, banishing illness and disease from Palestine. And I also told you that at the, after the ascension of Christ, after he ascends back into heaven, uh, you look in the book of Acts, you look in the book and the, and the epistles, uh, you see these, these kind of healings wane. They just kind of fade away. Uh, people are sick and they stay sick. Because the time of the miraculous, the time of these miraculous healings are over because Christ has ascended back into heaven. But in his ministry, Christ healed all who came to him. Christ even healed those with leprosy. And that's significant because the leper, uh, those with uh, leprosy were seen as the most despised in all society. It was a loathsome disease. In fact, the most loathsome disease known. And there's no cure for this disease, no remedy. It was repulsive, it was vile, it was ugly, it was disfiguring. People had dirty sores on them and skin ulcers and fingers and toes and parts of their nose would wear off, foul smell, raspy voice, rough skin. You couldn't miss the leper. You could see the leper. You could smell the leper. You could hear the leper. And if you were unfortunate enough to get too close to the leper to the leper, you might even begin, begin to taste a strange uh, taste in your mouth. So the leper was an outcast, a complete outcast from society. The leper was kept in isolation apart from everyone. No one could come, cure, could come near the leper. No one could come near the leper, yet Christ touched the leper. Put just a mark there in your Bible so you can return to it very quickly, but turn back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Uh, look at verse 1 and Matthew 8 1 when he had come down from the mountain great multitudes followed him and behold a leper came to him bowed down to him saying Lord if you are willing you can make me clean Verse 3, he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed, and immediately the leprosy was cleansed. So in an instant, the flesh that had been eaten away, the toes, the fingers, etc., that had dropped off, the raw sores all over his body, instantly restored to perfect soundness. The stench of decaying flesh was gone. The scaly, shriveled skin was now perfectly smooth and unscarred. Brightness again returns to the eyes. His voice is returned back to normal. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Christ said, I am willing, right? Because Christ said, I am, I am willing to be cleansed. I mean, Christ goes to the dregs of society to bring healing. 
Because, listen, he is the compassionate God who is among his people. He is the compassionate God among his people. He's come to demonstrate not only his divine power, but he's come to demonstrate divine love. This is the kind of kingdom that the ultimate king is going to bring forward. This is the type of kingdom that this king brings forth into the world, one that reaches out and physically touches the most lowly, the most untouchable, the most despised, the hurting. Now, the religious leaders of Israel not only hated Christ, obviously have no understanding of him because of their pride and arrogance. I guarantee you that the religious leaders of Israel most certainly would have never stooped to bother to even talk to or come near a man who is infected with leprosy, let alone to reach out and physically touch one. But the compassionate Christ does. The compassionate Christ embraces those who no one else will. He touches one who no one else will touch. Now stop and consider that just for a moment. Stop and consider the fact that Jesus physically touched the leper. Why did he do that? He didn't have to do it to heal him. Because very often, Jesus just spoke a word. Sometimes he healed from a distance. Didn't have to be anywhere near that person, right? So he didn't have to touch him. He just, uh, he could have healed him with a word. But he intentionally touches the man because why? He's compassionate. This man is suffering. He's been set aside from his society. He's an alien, an outcast in his society, in his own family. And people who are suffering physically and emotionally, they need compassion. But on top of that, the one thing that we all need is the touch of another human being. We need to feel that touch of another person. And that's what Christ did. The compassionate God, again, the compassionate God who is among his people, not distant, but among his people, demonstrates his divine power, demonstrates his divine compassion, demonstrates his divine love. He touches the leper. It's amazing. Don't, don't read over top of it. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing demonstration of the divinity of Christ in the power that he has to heal instantly, but it is a demonstration of the compassionate God who desires that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Now, biblically, leprosy was not only hideous and loathsome as a disease, but biblically, leprosy was a walking illustration of personal sin. And leprosy was also biblically a representation of the condition of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 1, 5, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. But the prophet says, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollied, uh, mollified with ointment. It, it's a description, again, not only of the leper with his wounds and sores, right, his wandering outcast. Uh, but it's a picture of a sick nation. It's a sick nation that has rejected the Messiah. A sick nation that can only, who, a uh, rejection of the Messiah, who's the only one who can cure physical disease, but more importantly, the, one who, the only one who can cure uh, uh, the spiritual disease of sin. The whole head is sick. Look in verse 4. The text says, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Right? When the leper told the priest them, right? when he told the priest that it was the person of Jesus Christ who had touched him and healed him, and when the priest saw that he indeed was uh, 
uh, cleansed, the leper was cleansed. And again, there's no cure for leprosy in this time. The priest should have broken forth in song, praising God, saying, Bless the Lord God of Israel because he has visited his people. Should have been a great time of rejoicing. That priest should have ran from that place as fast as he could to try to find the person of Jesus and adore him and worship him and fall down and praise him as the leper had done, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. The priest, again, represents unbelieving Israel. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. So again, the leper is cleansed in the witness of uh, the priest has seen it uh, himself. They will not, he will not, cannot recognize the fact that Jesus is God in their very midst. He will not acknowledge him. He will not recognize the reality of who Jesus is, although he had just healed this man who is unhealable, if I can use that word, if it even is a word, if I can use that in the context of the story, right? Evidence right before them of who Jesus is. Evidence backed by their own witness, by their own finding, yet they still reject him. Turn back to the book of John. Jesus says, look, John chapter 5, verse 36, the works, right? The works that I do, the work that the Father has given me to accomplish, these very things, these very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Listen, do not ever get into an argument over uh, the person of Jesus Christ with someone who is an unbeliever and start going down the rabbit trail of producing evidence. It's not an evidentiary issue. All men know that God exists by conscience, by creation. God says that. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of hard hearts. What we need to tell people to do is instead of bantering with them back and forth in some kind of discussion or debate is we need to tell them to repent, to bow their knee in time before they face the Father in judgment and face the fury of Christ because they have rejected him. The evidence was there. The priests rejected that evidence. The nation of Israel rejected that evidence because the whole head is sick. And Jesus says, look, the works the Father has given to me accomplished, these things bear witness. We don't understand the depth of the miraculous healing power of Christ because we don't understand the desperateness of people in a world without modern medicine like we enjoy. I think there's another thing that clouds our understanding of the tremendous power that is uh, evident in the power of Christ when he uh, heals. And unfortunately, it's caused by the fakes of our day, the charlatans, those who prey upon people who are sick, the false charismatic faith healers that are so much a common part of the modern Christian world, deceivers, frauds who don't have the power to heal, who the guys are on TV claiming they have power that they don't possess. And what they do is they prey on other people's infirmity. They steal their money from them. They fill auditoriums with uh, people who are struggling and hopeless people who are desperate, and in the name of Christ, they give them false hope. Now, God, I'll say this, God can heal whoever he wants, right? Whomever he wants, anytime he wants, as he desires. I'm not begging that issue. But the reality, and this is where somebody might take exception, uh, but it's truth. The, modern, the reality is there are no modern-day faith healers. None. Not a single one. There are no modern-day faith healers who have the genuine gift, who have the power to heal. That time has come and gone. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you make such a dramatic statement like that? Well, okay, let me ask you a question. If you're a genuine follower of Christ, and you're filled with the compassion, the love, the mercy of the Savior, and you had that gift, you had that gift, what would you do with that gift? 
What would you do with that gift? Would you not go to a place where people are actually sick? Wouldn't you go to a place where people are hurting? You wouldn't go to an auditorium or set up a tent or hide behind a TV screen. You'd go where people are sick. Maybe you'd go to a children's hospital. And then you'd go to another children's hospital. And then you'd go to a children's cancer hospital and you'd clear them all out, right? If you genuinely had that gift. You'd go to where people were genuinely in need. But the people that you see on TV are fakes, charlatans, frauds. They misrepresent God, they misrepresent Christ, and they need to be exposed. And to make things even worse, worse with these guys, to compound the situation even more, when people turn to these fakes, these charlatan healers, these false charismatic healers, and they do not get healed, then these false healers claim the issue was with that person who has come to look for help, that they didn't have enough faith to be healed. So now it's their fault. You know, Jesus wanted to heal you. Jesus has the power to heal you. He wanted to heal you, but your faith is too weak and you blew it. Which again is just another level of cruelty on these people who are already in dreadful situations. It really is an utter abomination or travesty, cruelty beyond measure. I saw one time a guy named Benny Hinn who is one of these fake faith healers who blasphemously claims that he represents Christ, which he does not. Even though he wrote a book a number of years back, I think it was in the 80s, written, it was called Good Morning Holy Spirit, and it became the number one Christian, quote-unquote, Christian bestseller for a long period of time, and the guy's an absolute fraud, which just shows you the lack of discernment in the general body of Christ, because this guy is a heretic, a fake, a blasphemer. I saw him on TV one time. He claimed that he had the power and the anointing from God to bring back the dead to life. And if people would just place their dead loved ones in front of the television screen while he was preaching, they would see God's power through him and the ability to, for God to bring them back from the dead. I quote him, uh, literally, this is what he said. He says, I see rows of caskets lining up in front of TV sets. I see them bringing, out them, bringing them, the dead ones, closer to the TV. And as people are coming closer, I see loved ones picking up the hands of their dead and letting them touch the screen. And people are getting raised and their hands are uh, getting raised as their hands touch the TV screen. The, world, the word will spread that if some dead person is put in front of the TV screen, they will be raised from the dead, and they will be by the thousands. Right? I mean, that kind of, an acti- that kind of uh, statement, that kind of activity is an utter... I, I can't even find the, ver- the verbs for it, you know, or the adjectives. I can't find the adjectives. Abomination, tragedy, cruelty beyond measure. To, in Christ's name, take advantage of people who are experiencing the point of ultimate grief having lost a loved one and telling them in the name of Christ if you just take your dead person and drag them close to the TV screen while he's preaching and put their hand in the front of the TV screen and touch the TV screen they're going to be brought to life and when that doesn't happen it put upon them the shame and guilt that they didn't have enough faith to believe listen it's your fault that your dead loved one is still dead that's cruelty beyond comprehension and guys like Benny Hinn and the countless others of their ilk are liars. They do not represent Christ. I was with a family one time. Some of you know this story. I was with a family once time, one time. 
who, uh, whose little girl, about eight or nine years old, had just been struck dead by a car. I was in the uh, emergency room with the family. And I was there with them several, for several hours. And the longer we were there with that little girl in that emergency room, her uh, body began to change. It began to literally deteriorate before our eyes. And death, which was already apparent, became even more apparent. And I cannot even begin to think of anything more cruel or heartless to say to that family, all you need to do is take that little girl's hand and put her in front of the TV while Benny Hinn is on his, uh, while he is uh, preaching and everything is going to be fine. It's cruelty beyond measure. Phonies like Hinn and all his ilk, all these false faith healers have to be exposed. Scripture commands it. Ephesians 5 and 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. This kind of fake healing is a modern tragedy. It's a, it's a, a loathsome tragedy in light of the genuine healing that Christ performed when he was here on the earth. In fact, when you look at the healing that Christ performed on the earth, there's a number of issues that distinguish what he did from the fake contemporary so-called faith healers of our day. There's six of them. Number one, when Jesus healed, he healed with a word or a touch. Right? He either healed with, by speaking a word or touching a person. There weren't any gimmicks. There was nobody coming up and popping somebody in the forehead. There was nobody putting their hand up like this and doing kind of some kind of fanfare. There was no falling over slain in the spirit, as you see on TV. None of that nonsense. None of that nonsense you see going on today by these so-called modern faith healers. Jesus healed by a word or Jesus healed by a touch. Number two, he healed instantaneously. He healed instantaneously. Again, we just read it out of Matthew 8. The leper was cleansed instantly. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Matthew 8, verse 13, the centurion's servant. It says he was healed that very hour. Peter's mother-in-law instantly healed. Matthew 8, 15. He touched her hand and the fever left her and he rose. she arose and waited on them. The woman with a bleeding problem of Mark, uh, Mark 5, 29 was healed. The text says immediately. Uh, Luke 17, verse 14, Jesus healed 10 lepers, in, lepers uh, instantaneously right there on the road. John 5, 9, the, the man who's lame man at the, the pool of Bethesda, says he immediately became well. It took up his pallet and began to walk. The man born blind, John 9, uh, first seven verses of that chapter, healed instantly. Jesus healed instantly. There was no, come, uh, come here, come to my meeting, go home and start getting better as these faith, fake faith healers often proclaim, there's no progressive healing. Instantaneous. Because if Christ had not done the spectacular, if Christ had not, done, had not healed people instantaneously, there would have been no miraculous element to what he did. There would have been nothing to demonstrate his deity. And the critics would have claimed that he was just part of uh, this, that healing, whatever quote-unquote healing was, was just part of the process of natural uh, events. Christ heals instantaneously. Number three, Christ heals totally. Totally. Christ heals totally. Think of Peter's mother-in-law. She's suffering with some kind of high fever. I don't know what she had. Maybe she's even close to death. But Christ rebukes the fever, and immediately she's well. Immediately she gets up and begins to wait on them. There's no recuperation period. Now, Jesus doesn't give any advice like, well, you know, you need to take it easy for the next few days uh, and, and rest a little bit. It doesn't say that. Right? He doesn't tell her to... Uh, claim her healing by faith. Her healing is instantaneous, and it's absolutely total. Again, the crippled man uh, who had never walked, he didn't have to go to rehab. 
His legs were atrophied. I told you this when we went through that story. His legs were all shriveled up. You've seen people who've had some kind of disease or something, and they're not able to move their body, and their, their body just shrivels up like that. It's called a contracture. The entire body does that if you can't move. Atrophy, muscles don't work. Muscles aren't strong enough to bear the weight. Contracture, everything just shrivels up. This guy just got up and left. Totally healed, completely healed. Number four, Christ healed everyone. Christ healed everyone. He healed instantaneously. He healed uh, totally. He healed with a word or a touch, and he healed everyone. Hey, guess what? There was no process lines to weed out the difficult cases. Headache, you go over here. Cerebral palsy, we'll uh, make sure that you get exited out the back door. Right? There was none of that. Christ healed everybody. He did not send home countless numbers of people with shattered, disconsolate hearts that were broken like the faith healers of our days do. Oh, sorry. Getting close to time here. It's 5 o'clock. Uh, our faith healer has to leave now. The program is over. He's, our faith healer's got to get a, catch a plane. He's got to get to the next city to fleece the flock. I mean, he's got to get to the next city so he can heal the next group of people, right? None of that with Jesus. Listen to this. Luke, 40, Luke 4, verse 40. While the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to Christ, and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. Christ healed everyone. Now again, do you realize under this category that Christ healed everyone, there's no screening line to go through the tough cases, right? There's also, listen, there's no conditions of faith here. There's no conditions of faith. There's no conditions of belief. There's no positive confession. He doesn't say to anyone, if you've got the faith to believe, then you can be healed. He doesn't say that like the false healers of our day do. do. He just healed everybody. He put his hands on anybody and everybody. On every one of them, he was healing them all. That's the power of Christ. Number five, Christ healed real diseases. Christ healed real diseases, actual organic diseases, not symptoms like faith healers do. You'll never see Jesus heal anybody of a headache. I have a tremendous headache right now. How do you know if I have a tremendous headache? Right? You don't have that. Now, he healed real diseases, organic diseases. Listen, he healed leprosy. He healed blindness. He healed paralysis. His miraculous power was true. It was verifiable. Crippled legs, withered hands. Christ performing deeds that were undeniably miraculous. And, number six, he raised the dead. He raised the dead. You can put a mark there and turn to uh, 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 back just a book to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. Verse 11, Luke 7, verse 11. <clears throat> Luke 7, verse 11 says, It came about soon afterwards that he went into a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Verse 12. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, and the only, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said, Do not weep. He came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt and said, Young man, 
Or he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, because they'd been, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. He's not just a great prophet. He's God in the flesh. Turn back to uh, Mark. Mark chapter 5. Verse 22, where Christ raises up the synagogue official's uh, daughter. Mark 5, verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet. Verse 23, and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. He went off with him, and a great multitude was also following him, pressing on him. Drop down to verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Verse 36, But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother uh, of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing, entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Verse 40, they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took uh, along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, said to her, Talitha kum, which translates mean little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, and immediately the girl arose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that people today who claim they have the modern gift of healing... They don't spend a lot of time in funeral parlors. They don't spend a lot of time in uh, cemeteries, do they? Why? The reason is obvious. They don't have the power they claim to have. They don't have that power. Yet, you have charismatics, and I've heard them, make claims that, well, you know, sometimes people do come back from the dead. Sometimes people are, are, are raised uh, and revived whose uh, vital signs have stopped. That's completely different than what Christ did. We not, aren't going to turn to it just because it's coming up uh, later on in, in the series, but it's completely different what Jesus did when he raised Lazarus from the dead, who'd been dead for four days, and by this time he stinketh, right? If the people today had the gift of, who claimed they had the gift of, uh, of healing, why don't they go to cemeteries? Why don't they go, they go to funeral parlors? Answer is obvious. They don't have the power they claim. But Jesus did. Jesus had that power. Again, back to, back to our, our story here in John 5. The witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do bear witness of me, and the Father has sent me. 
So again, the charismatics that go around making claims that aren't true, or they're making claims about people being raised from the dead today uh, when their vital signs have stopped. You know what they're doing? Uh, I mean, I heard a story of a guy in a far-off land and four times removed, and somebody told me, my cousin, you know, that I haven't even met, told me this story one time. You know, uh, there was a guy who died, and he was brought back to the de- from the dead. Oh, that's a tremendous line of evidence. Thanks for that. We can check that. Uh, we can affirm that later on, right? When people do those kind of things and say those kinds of stories, you know what they're doing? They're, they're trivializing the power of Christ. Christ had the real deal power, not the fake power, not the phony power. And what Christ did, he did very publicly. What Christ did, he didn't do behind the secret curtain, right? He did it very publicly before the multitudes, before vast crowds of people. Again, you'd think if people today generally had that gift of healing, they'd not only go to places where people are generally sick and ill and heal real diseases, they'd do it right out in front of the public. Because that's how Christ proved who he was, that he was God in the flesh. The great teacher J.C. Ryle says five things need to be noticed about our Lord's miracles. He said, number one, their number. He said, they're not only a few, but they're very many of them. Number two, their greatness. They weren't little, but they were mighty interferences with the ordinary course of nature. Number three, their publicity. They were generally not done in a corner, but out in the open, uh, out in open day and before many witnesses and often before enemies. Number four, their character. They're almost always works of love, mercy, and compassion, helpful and beneficial to man, not mere barren ex- uh, exhibitions of power. Number five, their direct appeal uh, to men's senses. They were visible. And again, they were visible and they could bear any examination. Jesus says, the works that the Father has given to me accomplished, these works I do, they bear witness that the Father has sent me. If we had time, which we don't, we could go in the rest of the New Testament and see the power of Christ, not only over sickness and disease, death, but we could see the numerous places in the New Testament that talks about Jesus' power over the natural. Jesus' power over the supernatural. Jesus' power over the natural, he could walk on water. He could calm the raging sea. He could demonstrate his power over the nature, uh, over nature and over the elements. Uh, in chapter 6, we'll get to it eventually, in the book of John, Christ produces, creates food for multitudes of people. Again, he demonstrates his power over nature. But he also cast out demons. He also demonstrated his power over the supernatural. Power over the forces of hell and the underworld. Matthew 8, uh, verse 16 says, When evening had come, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Christ demonstrates his power over fallen angels who work under the control and direction of Satan himself, who vainly try to withstand and oppose God's purposes. Matthew 9, verse 32. As they were going out, behold, a dumb man demon-possessed was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Because it never happened before. Who's got this kind of power to cast out the forces of evil? But amazingly, what was the Jewish religious leader's response to that demonstration of divine power? Verse 34 of Matthew 9 says, The Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And he casts out demons by the, by, the, by the ruler of demons. I mean, these guys just don't get it. They don't want to get it. They won't get it. They won't believe. Verse 35, Jesus was going about in all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Let, let me tell you, there's never been anybody like Jesus Christ. There has never been anybody like Jesus Christ. He's the most compelling individual who's ever walked the planet. 
No one has ever spoken like he's spoken. No one has ever performed the works that he's performed. No one has ever demonstrated the power that he demonstrated. He's the most remarkable person who has ever lived, who will ever live. And he is the one upon whom all men's eternal destinies depend. Believe upon him and live. Reject him and face the eternal consequences of damnation. Because Jesus didn't just have power over sickness, disease, death, demons, nature. Jesus claimed he had the power to forgive sin. The power to forgive sin. Look over in Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Verse 2. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Boy, the greatest words that any human ear could ever hear, your sins are forgiven. The greatest need that, every, that any man and woman has, right? The forgiveness of sin. And it's this one truth that makes Christianity absolutely distinct from and distant from any other religion on the planet because it teaches that forgiveness of sin is possible through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you realize the thing that separates men from God, the thing that sends men to eternal punishment is not sin? It's not sin. The thing that separates men from God that sends them to eternal punishment, it's not sin, it's unrepentant sin. It's unforgiven sin. It's not just sin because heaven's going to be full of forgiven sinners, redeemed sinners. Sinners have been forgiven by the blood of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, hell is full of the unrepentant, the unforgiven sinner, the one who has rejected Christ, the one who's tried to work or earn their way to heaven, the one who has believed a lie and not the truth, that he's accountable to God, which all men are. Hell is full of those who have trusted completely Uh, in themselves and not trusted completely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. It's biblical Christianity that proclaims a God of love, a God in whom there's great hope, confident hope. It's biblical Christianity that alone teaches there's a God who forgives sin because everybody else in every other religious system is trying to work their way that way and hopefully get there, hopefully done more things good than they've done bad, and hopefully they might get entrance into uh, heaven if uh, the God who they worship is not capricious, which they all are, and they might let you in if it's a good day for them or a bad day. It's only biblical Christianity that gives us confident hope. There's a forgiveness of sin and a certainty of eternity with the Father in the place called heaven, not because of what we've done, but solely based upon what he's done through Christ. That's it. Christianity alone teaches that God has made provision through his son, through his dear son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's taken our sin away, he's removed it as far as the east as the west, that he chooses not to remember it. Only God is perfectly right and able to forgive sin. He, only God has his justice satisfied and his, his holiness not violated because he poured out his wrath upon Christ as the substitute of all those who would repent and believe upon the Savior. It's Christ who bore our punishment, Christ who died in our place, so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. God pours out his wrath upon Christ not for his sin because he has none. Christ bears our punishment that we deserve. And again, that's the message of Christianity, that God delights in saving sinners. 
And he's done so at great personal cost to provide forgiveness through his son. Again, that's the one truth that makes Christianity absolutely distinct, that again proclaims hope. There's hope of forgiveness of sin, and it's found in Christ. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. I don't have time to go into it, but I tell you the paralytic was genuinely repentant. Right? How do you know that? Somebody asked. Well, because Jesus doesn't forgive people who aren't genuinely repentant. Right? So he's genuinely repentant. The religious leaders, verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Now, why does he say that? Because they knew that only God can forgive sin. They knew that when he, they heard Jesus speak those words of forgiveness, they concluded that he must have been a blasphemer. Because he's saying that he can do something that only God can do. He's slandering God. He's ascribing God-like attributes to himself. He's a blasphemer. Or, there's another option on the table. And the only other option on the table is the fact that he is indeed God come in the flesh. Again, there's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, child has to make a decision about Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with him? can't come and say that he's a nice guy, a nice teacher, a good, good uh, man. He's a moral guy. can't say those things if he's a blasphemer because only God can forgive sin. And if this man says that he can forgive sin, in reality he cannot, then men are placing their eternal destinies upon a lie and upon a liar, upon one who is deceiving them. Therefore, he can't be a good man. He can't be anything other than a fraud or a deceiver. But, if he can and does forgive sin, then he's God come in the flesh, amen? And that's exactly who he is. These men, the scribes, Luke says the Pharisees were there also. These religious leaders refusing the clear presence of truth to recognize Jesus' deity because they fail to and refuse to recognize their own sin. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or say rise and walk, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. And then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, go home. He rose and went home. The multitude saw this. They were filled with awe and glorified God. Right? Sin is completely incurable by man, kind of so. If we're going to have our sin problem dealt with, it has to be cured from someone on the outside. We need help. We need a deliverer. And again, forgiveness of sin is mankind's greatest need. And the only one who can forgive sin is the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus says, look, the witness I give is greater than John the Baptist. The works the Father gives me to accomplish, these works bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So again, Jesus says, look, the miraculous power over disease, sickness, over natural things, over the supernatural, over the demonic, over sin and death. Identify him for who he is. So much more than just a mere man. And the disciples, at one point, they said, wow, who is this guy that we're following? What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey? And what kind of man is this that can heal sickness and disease? What kind of man is this that can raise the dead? He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. Testimony by the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, second line of testimony, the miraculous power of Christ, third line of testimony, the Scripture, and Lord willing, we'll get to the remainder of the text next time. Our Father and our God, we are thankful.
for an opportunity to worship. We're thankful for an opportunity to, to learn more about our dear, dear beloved Lord Jesus Christ and the great power and the great compassion that he has for the hurting. In times of doubt, help fill our minds with truth about the reality of who you are as our God and who Christ is. When John the Baptist was facing a difficult time in the book of Matthew and perhaps struggling a bit, John's in prison and hears the works of Christ. He sends word to his disciples and says, Are you the one? I thought you were the one. I know you're the one, but are you the one? Should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus Christ, exactly who he claimed to be, mankind's only hope, God come in the flesh. We praise you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.